0: Section 10 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The old St. Gotthard leaves from a notebook. Bern, September 1873. In Bern again, some eleven weeks after having left it in July. I have never been in Switzerland so late, and I came hither innocently supposing the last cook's tourist, to have paid out his last coupon and departed. But I was lucky, it seems, to discover an empty cot in an attic, and a very tight place at a table d'hote. People are all flocking out of Switzerland, as in July they were flocking in, and the main channels of egress are terribly choked. I've been here several days, watching them come and go, It is like the march past of an army it gives one for an occasional change from darker thoughts a lively impression of the numbers of people now living and above all now moving at extreme ease in the world here is little switzerland disgorging its tens of thousands of honest folk chiefly english and rarely to judge by their faces and talk children of light in any eminent degree for whom snow-picks and glaciers and passes and lakes and chalets and sunset and a cafe complet, including honey, as the coupon says, have become prime necessities for six weeks every year. It's not so long ago that lords and nabobs monopolized these pleasures, but nowadays a month's tour in Switzerland is no more a jeu de prince than a Sunday excursion. To watch this huge Anglo-Saxon wave ebbing through Ben suggests, no doubt fallaciously, that the common lot of mankind isn't, after all, so very hard, and that the masses have reached a high standard of comfort. A view of the Obelând chain, as you see it from the garden of the hotel, really butters one's bread most handsomely. And here are I don't know how many hundred cooks, tourists a day, looking at it through the smoke of their pipes. Is it really the masses, however, that I see every day at the Table d'Ot? They have rather too few H's to the dozen, but their good nature is great. Some people complain that they vulgarise Switzerland. But as far as I'm concerned, I freely give it up to them and offer them a personal welcome, and take a peculiar satisfaction in seeing them here. Switzerland is a show country. I am more and more struck with the bearings of that truth, and its use in the world is to reassure persons of a benevolent imagination when they begin to wish for the trudging millions a greater supply of elevating amusement. Here is amusement for a thousand years and is elevating, certainly as mountains three miles high can make it. I expect to live to see the summit of Monte Rosa heated by steam tubes, and adorned with a hotel setting 3 tubs dot a day. I have been walking about the arcades, which used to be so a grateful shade in July, but which seem rather dusky and chilly in these shortening autumn days. I'm struck with the way the English always speak of them, with shudder, as gloomy, as dirty, as evil-smelling, as suffocating, as freezing, as anything and everything but admirably picturesque. I take us Americans for the only people who, in travelling, judge things on the first impulse, when we do judge them at all, not from the standpoint of simple comfort, Most of us, strolling forth into these bustling basements, are, I imagine, too much amused, too much diverted, with a sense of an alienable right to public ease to be conscious of heat and cold, of thick air, or even of the universal smell of strong charcuterie. If the visible romantic were banished from the face of the earth, I'm sure the idea of it would still survive in some typical American heart. Lucerne, September. Bern, I find, has been filling with tourists at the expense of Lucerne, which I've been having almost to myself. There are six people at the table d'hôte. The excellent dinner denotes, on the part of the chef, the easy leisure in which true artists love to work. The waiters have nothing to do but lounge about the hall and chink in their pockets the fees of the past season. The day has been lovely in itself and pervaded to my sense by the gentle glow of a natural satisfaction at finding myself again on the threshold of Italy. I am lodged en prince, in a room with a balcony overhanging the lake, a balcony on which I spent a long time this morning at dawn thanking the mountaintops from the depths of a landscape lover's heart for their promise of superbly fair weather. There were a great many mountain tops to thank, for the crags and peaks and pinnacles tumbled away through the morning mist in an endless confusion of grandeur. I have been all day in better humour with Lucerne than ever before, a forecast reflection of Italian moods. If Switzerland, as I wrote the other day, is so furiously a showplace, Lucerne is certainly one of the biggest booths at the fair. The little key under the trees, squeezed in between the decks of the steamboats and the doors of the hotels, is a terrible medley of Saxon dialects, a jumble of pilgrims in all the phases of devotion, equipped with book and staff, alpenstock and bydecker. There are so many hotels and trinket shops, so many omnibuses and steamers, so many sangotard venterini, so many ragged urchins poking photographs, minerals, and Luchanese English at you, that you feel as if the lake and mountains themselves in all their loveliness were but a part of the enterprise of landlords and peddlers, and half expect to see the rigi and Pilatus and the fine weather figure as items on your hotel bill between the bougie and the siphon. Nature herself assists you to this conceit, there is something so operatic and suggestive of footlights and scene-shifters in the view on which Lucerne looks out. You are one of 5,000, accommodated spectators. You have taken your season ticket, and there is a responsible impresario somewhere behind the scenes. There is such a luxury of beauty in the prospect, such a redundancy of composition and effect so many more peaks and pinnacles than are needed to make one heart happy or regale the vision of one quiet observer that you finally accept the little babel on the quay and the looming masses in the clouds as equal parts of a perfect system and feel as if the mountains had been waiting so many ages for the hotels to come and balance the colossal group that they show a right after all to have them big And numerous. The scene shifters have been at work all day long, composing and discomposing the beautiful background of the prospect, massing the clouds and scattering the light, effacing and reviving, making play with their wonderful machinery of mist and haze. The mountains rise, one behind the other, in an enchanting gradation of distances and of melting blues and greys. You think each successive tone the loveliest and haziest possible, till you see another loom dimly behind it. I couldn't enjoy even the Swiss times over my breakfast, till I had marched forth to the office of the saint gotard service of coaches and demanded the banquette for tomorrow. The one place at the disposal of the office was taken. But I might possibly m'entendre with the conductor for his own seat, the conductor being generally visible in the intervals of business at the post office. To the post office after breakfast I repaired over the fine new bridge, which now spans the hoist and gives such a woeful air of country cousinship to the crooked old wooden structure which did sole service when I was here four years ago. The old bridge is covered with a running hood of shingles and adorned with a series of very quaint and vivid little paintings of the dance of death, quite in the Holbein manner. The new sends up a painful glare from its white limestone and is ornamented with candelabra in a meretricious imitation of platinum. As an almost professional cherisher of the quaint, I ought to have chosen to return, at least, by the dark and narrow way. But mark how luxury unmans us. I was already demoralised, I crossed the threshold of the timbered portal, took a few steps, and retreated. It smelt badly. So I marched back, counting the lamps in their fine falsity, but the other, the crooked and covered way, smelt very badly indeed. And no good American is without a fund of accumulated sensibility to the odour of a stale timber. Meantime... I had spent an hour in the great yard of the post office, waiting for my conductor to turn up and seeing the yellow malle post pushed to and fro. At last, being told my man was at my service, I was brought to speech of a huge, jovial, bearded, delightful Italian clad in the blue coat and waistcoat with close round silver buttons, which are the heritage of the old postilions. No, it was not he as a friend of his. And finally, the friend was produced, on costume de vie, but equally jovial, and uh, Italian enough, a brave Lucianese, who had spent half of his life between Bellinzona and Camelada. For ten francs, this worthy man's perch behind the luggage was made mine as far as Bellinzona, and we separated with reciprocal wishes for good weather on the morrow. Tomorrow was so manifestly determined to be as fine as any other 30th of September since the weather became on this planet a topic of conversation that I've had nothing to do but stroll about Lucerne, staring, loafing and vaguely intent on regarding the fact that, whatever happens, my place is paid to Milan. I loafed into the immense new Hotel National and read the New York Tribune on a blue satin divan after which I was rather surprised on coming out to find myself stirring at a green Swiss lake and not at the Broadway omnibuses. The Hotel National is adorned with a perfectly appointed Broadway bar, one of the prohibited ones, seeking hospitality in foreign lands after the manner of an old-fashioned French or Italian refugee. Milan, October My journey hither... It was such a pleasant piece of traveller's luck that I feel a delicacy for taking it to pieces to see what it was made of. Do what we will, however, there remains in all deeply agreeable impressions a charming something we can't analyze. I found it agreeable even, given the rest of my case, to turn out of bed at Lucerne by four o'clock into the chilly autumn darkness. The thick starred sky was cloudless and there was as yet no flush of dawn, but the lake was wrapped in a ghostly white mist which crept halfway up the mountains and made them look as if they too had been lying down for the night and were casting away the vaporous tissues of their bedclothes. Into this fantastic bog the little steamer went creaking away, and I hung about the deck with the two or three travellers who had known better than to believe it would save them francs or midnight sighs over those steps you pay with your person to go and wait for the diligence at the Poste at Pluellen or yet at the Guillaume Tell. The dawn came sailing up over the mountain tops, flushed but unperturbed, and blew out the little stars and then the big ones, as a thrifty matron after a party blows out her candles and lamps. The mist went melting and wandering away into the duskier hollows and recesses of the mountains and the summits defined their profiles against the cool soft light at fluellen before the landing the big yellow coaches were actively making themselves bigger and piling up boxes and bags on their roofs in a way to turn nervous people's thoughts to the sharp corners of the downward twists of the great road I climbed into my own banquet and stood eating peaches. Half a dozen women were hawking them about under the horse's legs with an air of security that might have been offensive to the people scrambling and protesting below between coupé and and anterreur. They were all English, and all had false alarms about the claim of somebody else to their place, the place for which they produced their ticket, with a declaration in three or four different tongues of the inalienable right to it given them by the expenditure of British gold. They were all serenely confuted by the stout, purple-faced, many-buttoned conductors, patted on the backs, assured that their bathtubs had every advantage of position on the top, and stowed away according to their dues. When once one has fairly started on a journey and has but to go and go by the impetus received, it is surprising what entertainment one finds in very small things. We surrender to the gaping traveller's mood, which surely isn't the unwisest the heart knows. I don't envy people at any rate who have outlived or outworn the simple sweetness of feeling settled to go somewhere with a bag and umbrella. If we were settled on the top of the coach, and the somewhere contains an element of the new and strange, the case is at its best. In this matter, wise people are content to become children again. We don't turn about on our knees to look out of the omnibus window, but we indulge in very much the same round-eyed contemplation of accessible objects. Responsibility is left at home, or at the worst, packed away in the valise relegated to quite another part of the diligence with the clean shirts and the writing case. I sucked in the gladness of gaping for this occasion with the somewhat acrid juice of my indifferent peaches. It made me think them very good. This was the first of a series of kindly services it rendered me. It made me agree next, as we started, that the gentleman at the booking office at Lucerne had but played a harmless joke when he told me that the regular seat in the banquet was taken. No one appeared to claim it, so the conductor and I reversed positions and I found him quite as conversable as the usual Anglo-Saxon. He was trolling snatches of melody and showing his great yellow teeth in a jovial grin all the way to Melanzona. And this in face of the sombre fact that the saint Gotard tunnel is scraping away into the mountain all the while under his nose and numbering the days of the many-buttoned brotherhood. But he hopes, for long services' sake, to be taken into the employ of the railway. He, at least, is no cherisher of quaintness and has no romantic perversity. I found the railway coming on, however, in a manner very shocking to mine. About an hour short of undermat, they have pierced a huge black cavity in the mountain, around which is grown up a swarming, digging, hammering, smoke-compelling colony. There are great barracks with tall chimneys down in the gorge that bristled the other day, but with natural graces, and a wonderful increase of wine shops in the little village of Gershing and above. Along the breast of the mountain, beside the road, come wandering several miles of very handsome iron pipes of a stupendous girth a conjured for the water-power with which some of the machinery is worked. It lies at its mighty length among the rocks like an immense black serpent, and serves as a mere detail, to give one the measure of the central enterprise. When at the end of our long day's journey, well down in warm Italy, we came upon the other aperture of the tunnel, I could but uncap with a grim reverence. Truly, nature is great, but she seems to me to stand in very much the shoes of my poor friend the conductor. She is being superseded at her strongest points successively, and nothing remains but for her to take humble service with her master. If she can hear herself think amid that din of blasting and hammering, she must be reckoning up the years to elapse before the cleverest of Aubert-Ingénieur decides that mountains, a mere obstructive matter, and has the Jungfrau melted down and the Residium carried away in balloons and dumped upon another planet. The Devil's Bridge, with the same failing apparently as the good Homer, was decidedly nodding. The volume of water in the torrent was shrunken and I missed the thunderous uproar and far-leaping spray that have kept up a miniature tempest in the neighbourhood on my other passages. It suddenly occurs to me that the fault is not in the good Homer's inspiration, but simply in the big black pipes above mentioned. They dip into the rushing stream higher up, presumably, and pervert its fine frenzy to their prosaic uses. There could hardly be a more vivid reminder of the standing quarrel between use and beauty. And at the hard time poor beauty is having. I looked wistfully as we rattled into dreary Andermatt at the great white zigzags of the Oberalp road which climbed away to the left. Even on one's way to Italy, one may spare a throb of desire for the beautiful vision of the castled Grison. Dear to me, the memory of the day's drive last summer through that long blue avenue of mountains to queer little mouldering Illans visited before supper in the ghostly dusk. At Andermatt, a sign over a little black doorway flanked by two dunghills seemed to me tolerably comical. Minéraux, quadruped, oiseau, oeuf, tableau antique. We bundled into dinner, and the American gentleman in the banquette made the acquaintance of the Irish lady in the coupé, who talked of the weather as foine, and wore a Persian scarf twisted about her head. At the other end of the table sat an Englishman out of the antérieur, who bore an extraordinary resemblance to the portraits of Edward VI and Mary's reigns. He was a walking, a convincing Holbein. The impression was of value to a cherisher of quaintness, and he must have wondered, not knowing me for such a character, why I stared at him. It wasn't him I was staring at, but some handsome Seymour or Dudley or Digby, with a rough and a round cap and plume. From Andermatt, through its high, cold, sunny valley, we passed into a rugged little Ospenthal, and then up the last stages of the ascent. From here the road was all new to me. Among the summits of the various alpine passes there is little to choose. You wind and double slowly into keener cold and deeper stillness. You put on your overcoat and turn up the collar. You count the nestling snow patches, and then you cease to count them. You pause as you trudge before the lumbering coach and listen to the last-heard cowbell tinkling away below you in kindlier herbage. The sky was tremendously blue and the little stunted bushes on the snow-streaked slopes were all dyed with autumnal purples and crimsons. It was a great display of a colour. Purple and crimson too, though not so fine, but the faces thus started us from the greasy little double casements of a barrack beside the road, where the horses paused before the last pull. There was one little girl in particular beginning to nise her hair as civilization approached in a manner not to be described with her poor little blue-black hands. At the summit, are the two usual grim little stone taverns, the steel-blue tarn, the snow-white peaks, the paws in the cold sunshine. Then we begin to rattle down with two horses. In five minutes... We are swinging along the famous zigzags. Engineer, driver, horses. It's very handsomely done by all of them. The road curves and curls and twists and plunges like the tail of a kite. Sitting perched in the banquette, you see it making below you and in mid-air certain bold gyrations which bring you as near as possible short of the actual experience, to the philosophy of that immortal Irishman who wished that his fall from the housetop would only last. But the zigzags last no more than Paddy's fall, and in due time we were all coming to our senses over Café au lait in the little inn at Fido. After Fido, the valley plunging deeper, began to take thick afternoon shadows from the hills, and at Erolo we were fairly in the twilight. But the pink and yellow houses shimmered through the gentle gloom, and Italy began in broken syllables to whisper that she was at hand. For the rest of the way to bellinzona her voice was muffled in the grey of evening, and I was half vexed to lose the charming sight of the changing vegetation, but only half vexed, for the moon was climbing all the while nearer the edge of the crags that overshadowed us, and a thin magical light came trickling down into the winding, murmuring gorges. It was a most enchanting business. The chestnut trees loomed up with double their daylight stature. The vines began to swing their low festoons-like nets to trip up the fairies. At last, the ruined towers of Balanzona stood gleaming in the moonshine, and we rattled into the great postyard. It was eleven o'clock, and I had risen at four. Moonshine apart, I wasn't sorry. All that was very well, but the drive next day from Bellinzona to Como is to my mind what gives its supreme beauty to this great pass. One can't describe the beauty of the Italian lakes, nor would one try if one could. The floweriest rhetoric can recall it only as a picture on a fireboard recalls a cloud. But it lay spread before me for a whole perfect day. In the long gleam of the major from whose head the diligence swerves away and begins to climb the bosky hills that divide it from Lugano, in the shimmering melting Asia of the sudden slopes and masses, in the luxurious tangle of nature and the familiar amenity of man, in the lawn-like inclinations where the great group chestnuts make so cool a shadow and so warm a light, in the rusty vineyards, the littered cornfields, and the tawdry wayside shrines. But most of all, it's the deep yellow light that enchants you and tells you where you are. See it come filtering down through a vine covered trellis on the red handkerchief with which a ragged contadina has bound her hair, and all the magic of Italy to the eye makes an aureole about the poor girl's head. Look at the brown-breasted reaper eating his chunk of black bread under a spreading chestnut. Nowhere is shadow so charming. Nowhere is colour so charged. Nowhere has accidents such grace. The whole drive to Lugano was one long loveliness, and the town itself is admirably Italian. There was a great unlading of the coach, during which I wandered under certain brown old arcades and bought for six sous from a young woman in a gold necklace a hatful of peaches and figs. When I came back, I found the young man holding open the door of the second diligence, which had lately come up, and beckoning to me with a despairing smile. The young man, I must note, was the most amiable of Ticinese, though he wore no buttons. He was attached to the diligence in some amorish capacity and had an eye to the mailbags and other valuables in the boot. I grumbled at Bern over the want of soft curves in the Swiss temperament, but the children of the tangled tessin are cast in the Italian mould. My friend had as many quips and cranks as a Neapolitan. We walked together for an hour under the chestnuts while the coach was plodding up from Bellinzona, and he never stopped singing till we reached a little wine house where he got his mouth full of bread and cheese. I looked into his open door, a la and saw the young woman sitting rigid and grim, staring over his head, with a great pile of bread and butter in her lap. He had only informed her most politely that she was to be transferred to another diligence and must do him the favour to descend. But she evidently knew of but one way for a respectable young insulary of her sex to receive the politeness of a foreign adventurer, guilty of an eye betraying latent pleasantry. Heaven only knew what he was saying. I told her. And she gathered up her parcels and emerged. A part of the day's great pleasure perhaps Was my grave sense of being an instrument in the hands of the powers toward the safe consignment of this young woman and her boxes when once you have really bent to the helpless you are caught there is no such steel trap and it holds you fast my rather grim abigail was a neophyte in foreign travel though doubtless cunning enough at her trade which I inferred to be that of making up those prodigious chignons worn mainly by English ladies. Her mistress had gone on a mule over the mountains to Cardenabia, and she herself was coming up with the wardrobe, two big boxes and a bathtub. I had played my part under the powers of Balanzona and had interposed between the poor girl's frightened English and the dreadful ticinese French of the functionaries in the post yard. At the custom house on the Italian frontier I was a peculiar service. There was a kind of fateful fascination in it. The wardrobe was voluminous. I exchanged a paternal glance with my charge as a douanier plunged his brown fists into it. Who was the lady at Caranabia? What was she to me or I to her? She wouldn't know when she rustled down to dinner next day that it was I, who had guided the frail skiff of her public bases of vanity to port. So unseen, but not unfelt, do we cross each other's orbits. The skiff, however, may have founded that evening in sight of land. I disengaged the young woman from among her fellow travellers and placed her boxes on a handcart in the picturesque streets of Como within a stone's throw of that lovely striped and toned cathedral which has the facade of cameo medallions. I could only make the Facchino swear to take it to the steamboat. He too was a jovial dog, but I hope he was polite with precautions. 1873. End of section 10.